I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and a great New Year's. We are here on January the 4th. 2015, and uh, it is the time of resolutions, and people have been making resolutions now for the last couple of days, the last couple of weeks, and some of you maybe have made resolutions, and uh, usually those have the best of intentions. We decide we want to eat better, or uh, we're going to start exercising, or we're going to spend more time with family and friends or loved ones, and uh, all kinds of great things that we come up with and ideas that we come up with. Uh, problem though with resolutions if you know from resolutions in the past is life change never comes about because of some big decision or some big statement it's uh it's not in the big things that we see little life changes it's in the everyday small changes that we make and so i always encourage people when they talk about resolutions and i'm as guilty i always make resolutions as well uh, that instead of looking at some big statement or some big commitment uh, why not look at your everyday life and look at little things that you can do that will lead to the big changes and you know if you've ever made those kind of changes in your life. It's the the day-to-day deciding what you're going to eat that day or up and uh, going to to work out when you don't feel like working out or making the extended effort to go and spend time with someone, uh, spend time with someone that you need to be in their life or present in their life. And so it's those little things that make a difference. And, And as you look at those little things all tied in together, they create the big life changes that we make. And so a lot of times it's just the idea of simple motivation. It's tough to get motivated when you make a blanket statement that I'm just going to eat better. I'm just going to love people more. I'm just going to be more present in someone's life. Those require little decisions. And it's the same way in our spiritual life. I know a lot of people make spiritual commitments this time of year. I'm going to be in church more. I'm going to give more. I'm going to uh, be active or be involved more. I'm going to read my Bible more. And all those kind of things start out with the best intentions. But much like our New Year's resolutions, they never seem to be fulfilled because you can't make spiritual life change on a blanket statement. You can't make a spiritual life change based on uh, some kind of emotional decision. It has to require obedience and everyday discipline. It requires you making uh, the conscious effort to take little steps And it's in those little steps, that one step of obedience and and that one step of faith and that one step of trust, that as you do that, all of a sudden you begin to see things in your life are changed. It's kind of like, you know, when you're losing weight or you're trying to lose weight, the worst thing for you to do is to go and look at the scale every day. Because if you look at the scale every day, you're going to get discouraged because you're not going to see much progress. But if you wait a week and you go back, then you'll see a little progress. You wait two weeks, if you can discipline yourself to do that enough, then you'll see great progress. And all of a sudden you think, wait, it is making a difference. Because life change doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Spiritual life change doesn't happen overnight. It takes time and it takes commitment and it takes obedience. And so as you look at the new year and whatever commitments that you've made, whatever uh, resolutions that you've made, I want to encourage you instead of writing down 10 big things or five big things, look at your life this week and look at little patterns, look at little behaviors that you do and, and go through and think about ways that you can change those behaviors to see your life change. You know, a lot of people I hear and and I read people talking about what they're going to do this year and how they're going to change their life. And uh, a lot of people throw around the term God's will. 
I want to know what God's will is for my life this year. This year, I'm going to plug in to God's will. And that, that sounds like a great statement, but what does that really mean? What does it mean when we say God's will? What is God's will for my life? People come in and say, Pastor, is it God's will that I get married? Is it God's will that I take this job? Is it God's will that that I do whatever it is that they're praying about or thinking about doing? Uh, And I think we put that term in somewhat of a mystical realm. We make it sound like it's something out there, unsearchable and unknowable. And, and, you know, we go and buy self-help books and we, we do all kinds of things to try to figure out maybe where God is leading us. Uh, You know, it's funny when you listen to people and how they describe finding God's will, uh, we act like sometimes that God is this cosmic uh, Easter bunny that takes it and, you know, he has one will for our life and he goes and he hides it and and we have to go and search for it. And when we get close, you know, it's kind of, you come to church and you feel like God's saying you're hot, you're warm, you're warm. And then all of a sudden when we get close to it, he moves it somewhere else. And so we have to go search again and, and and it, it's not something we'll ever attain. Some people act like it's God's will is this one big thing in their life that it's some overreaching, overarching goal, like a brass ring that we're all trying to go out and grab or strive to. A lot of people, I know when I was young, I used to think if you, if you said, I want to do what God's will is for my life, it always included things that we think of as being bad. Uh, you know, that if I submit to God's will, that means I'm going to have to go, you know, serve as a missionary in Africa. Or I'm going to have to go and, get, you know, give up all my friends. Or I'm going to have to go and do something that uh, is not going to be fun according to, you know, what I determined fun is. And all of those things are, don't give a clear understanding of what God's will is. Because, you see, God's will is very simple. And it's very easy to discern. And it's very easy to find. You don't find God's will in a uh, self-help book. You don't find it on TV. You don't find it uh, in going out and searching all of those things. You don't even find it in a good sermon. The Bible says God's will is always found in God's word. And it's something that he wants us to discover. It's not something that he hides. It's not something that you've got to go and dig and search for. It's very clear That God has a desire for every person in this room and it's here in his word where he'll tell you what his desire is. And the reason so many Christians struggle with that idea or that concept of God's will is because we don't spend enough time in God's word. Because see, once you start getting into God's word, his will for our life becomes pretty obvious. You don't have to go and ask people. It always either points us in the right direction or it confirms what the Holy Spirit is speaking to our heart. You know, a lot of times Christians will ask me and, you know, they want me to say yes or no. You know, pastor, am I supposed to do this? You know, the Holy Spirit's telling me, and and I feel like this is something I'm supposed to do. What do you think? I always send them back here. Because you can always confirm what God is calling you to do in the Holy Spirit through his word. You find it in his word. And and there's many, many places, uh, at least eight times in the New Testament, that the Bible talks about God's will specifically. It says, this is God's will for your life. Uh, The first and probably most important that you find in almost every one of those examples is God's will is that we be saved. See, God's will for our life is that we reconcile our relationship to him. The Bible says in Philippians that God is patient. Why? Because his heart, his passion, his desire is that no man 
miss salvation and that all would come to repentance in Christ. His desire for you and I, first and foremost, is that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not some prayer that you pray, not some religious experience, that you have a personal, everyday relationship with the creator of the universe, that that you talk with him, that you walk with him, that you listen to him. God desires that we have that saving faith, that by, by faith and grace in Christ, through Jesus, we've accepted him. And so I pray that if you're looking for God's will in your life, that is the first thing that God desires from you. The second thing that is real clear, and we've discovered from studying the book of Ephesians, is that the Bible says God's desire is that you be filled with the Holy Spirit tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 in a verse that gets misquoted all the time it says God's will is that you not be drunk with wine but that you be filled with the spirit and a lot of us get lost on that not drunk with wine instead of looking at what he says being filled with the spirit the idea the reason he put the the wine there was to give the illustration of someone that is drunk that is overflowing that is uh, out of control of their own self and says that that's how you need to be with the holy spirit you see god's desire is that you would be filled with the holy spirit now there's a difference between having the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about it over and over again in our last chapter in the book of Ephesians we've been studying. You know, when you become a believer, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. Every one of us has God's presence inside of us. The moment you accept Christ, he comes to live in you. But there's a difference between him living and him filling you with his power and his presence. And we talked in Ephesians chapter 3 that, that God wants the Holy Spirit to be relevant and present and in control in every area of your life. And when that happens, that's when you become being filled with the Holy Spirit. You become filled, and as you become filled with the Holy Spirit, God overflows, and it, it goes into every area of your life. And so God's desire, God's will for you and I is that we be believers in Christ or have a relationship with Jesus, and that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, now those are big things. Those are general things. Those are things that when you look at in the Scripture, it talks to really everybody, everybody in this room that relates to. Uh, but what about more specific things? You know, if God's desire is that I be filled with the Holy Spirit and that I be a believer, what about my everyday living? Does God's will speak to, to 2015? Does it speak to, to this year? Does it speak to this week? Does it speak to today? Does it speak to my marriage? What is God's will, God's desire for me and my spouse or me and my children or me and my parents or me and the people that I work with or me and the places that I serve? Well, that's where our passage comes in this morning because it is uh, one of those times where God's Word is so timely uh, that it amazes me. You know, as a pastor, when you're preaching through a series, and we've been walking through Ephesians, this is our 17th message in the book of Ephesians, and if you missed any, I encourage you, go online to our website or to our iPodcast, and uh, you can go and listen to all the ones that catch you up. Uh, And it's important because moving forward, you need to know where we've been. Uh, But when you're preaching to a series like this, and you're going verse by verse, uh, you come to certain holidays days or certain times and you're in that series there's always a tendency as a pastor to want to say okay I'm going to you know put that in a drawer we're going to put the series in a drawer because I'm going to preach a couple messages that relate to this holiday when it's Christmas or it's Easter or it's Mother's Day you know you say okay I'm going to preach Christmas series or or you know Mother's Day series or even a New Year's series Uh, but there are times that I've discovered 
that God's timing and God's planning is much bigger than anything we could imagine. And uh, there are times when what you're preaching through speaks exactly to that moment, to that time, to that holiday, to that day. And this is one of those times. Because if I was searching the Bible to tell you what is God's desire, what is God's passion, what is God's um, control for you in 2015, what does he want from you? There'd be no better verse than the verse that we're going to look at this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we're just going to look at the, the first verse. I've put several verses on there, but we're just going to look uh, at one verse, and that verse is powerful enough to make a difference in your life that you would never imagine or could never believe. You know, in looking at Ephesians, we've broken it down. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul is talking about uh, doctrine. And doctrine is not something you need to be scared of. Sometimes when you say we're studying doctrine, people get this idea that it's deep or it's too thick for me or it's stuff that I can't understand. Doctrine just means teachings. It just means truth. It just means principles. And in in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, Paul lays out principles of what we are as a Christian. He basically lays out who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. And he lays it out in beautiful language. But he also talks about what we've been given. All the blessings that we have. All of the things that you as a Christian now possess. And then he turns in Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, he's going to move from the principles to the practice. He's going to say, okay, now I'm going to encourage you how you take those truths that you just learned and put them into practice. How you take all of those things that, that were doctrinal, that are true about you, and live them out in your everyday lives. He does the same thing in many of his epistles. He does it in Corinthians. He does it in Romans. Romans 1 through 11, 1 through chapter 11, that's all doctrine those are principles those are truths and then you get to chapter 12 and all of a sudden from 12 to 16 of Romans it becomes how you live that out and so this morning Paul is at that pivotal point where at chapter 4 verse 1 where he is making a turn to the practical he's making a turn for us living out these principles but he doesn't want to lose you understanding the truths that you just heard or that he's just been teaching because if you don't grasp those you can't move forward and so you know it's important to paul he really wants us to understand that the right practice the right living has to always be based on right principles If you don't have the right truths that you're clinging to, you'll never be able to live the way God's called you to live. Uh, If you're clinging to something that is not true, that's where legalism comes in, and that's where the law comes in. That's where so many people that are walking through a drudgery of Christian life, instead of a passionate experience with Christ, it's because they're not standing on the right principles. And so Paul wants us to understand that before you get into practice, you have to have the principles. Because see, if you, do, if you just go to chapter 4, 5, and 6 and start trying to do the things that are in here without understanding the first part, it just becomes a list. He talks in Ephesians chapter 5 about husbands and wives and Ephesians chapter 6 about parents and children and the relationship. Now, if you just take that and, and read it just off the page, out of context of where he's going, it just sounds like a, you do these things, A, B, C, and D. But he doesn't tell you the power that you have to live those things. 
And so you go and you try to apply those principles to your life and, and practice them, but you don't have the principles that undergird it. And so as he is moving into this new section, he wants to make sure that we cling to what we held to. And so as we look at, at chapter 4, we're going to, like I said, just look at this first one, but remember all of that as it's held there. Chapter 4, verse 1. You say, what does God want for my life? Here it is. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, and we'll stop there. Some of your translations in the King James says, therefore. And uh, the NIV doesn't say, therefore. It says, then, after a prisoner for the Lord, uh, because it's drawing back. And as I said, Paul is wanting us to remember. And I just wanted for a few seconds just to remind you of a couple of things that Paul told us about who we are in Christ. And I went slow through chapters 1 and 2 because I really wanted you to embrace it. Because I felt like so many of us don't understand who God reckons us to be. Because you see, our identity in Christ makes a difference in everything that we do. Uh, our identity in Christ, when, when I have couples in or teenagers in and they're, they're struggling with premarital sex, uh, struggling with temptation, struggling with uh, peer pressure and cliques and groups, uh, I always take them back not to talking about those struggles, but to talking about their identity in Christ. Because you see, it's your identity in Christ, who you are in Jesus Christ, that overcomes those things. It's your identity in Christ that gives you the confidence to stand for whatever God's calling you to do, to make principled stands, to, to live a life that is holy, to live a life that is after Christ. And so I wanted to remind you a couple of things that he said about you. The first thing is he told us in chapter 1, he called us saints. You remember when we went through that, he said, you are now a child of God. You are a part of his family. You are not just a sinner saved by grace. So many people excuse their life and say, listen, I, I'm sorry, but I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, I am a saint who sins sometimes. I am no longer that old person. That person is gone. I am now a saint in God's eyes. He reckons me one of his children. And that means I'm accepted. That means I am loved. That means you are loved. No matter who rejects you in this world, no matter what happens in this world, you are accepted and loved because you are a child of the king. And because you're a child of the king, you have a higher calling. He told us in Ephesians chapter 1 that you've been given every spiritual blessing that is available. That means at your fingertips, at your lips, you have every resource available in the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, he tells us you have such power within you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is yours. Now, if you and I would ever begin to embrace that, if we would ever begin to understand all that we have and all that is available, it would change everything that we do. You see, God reckons you to that person, a saint, every blessing, power that changes from the inside out. That's who God thinks we are. So when he says, therefore, then, he is wanting you to keep that fresh in your mind as we move forward. Then he says, I, Paul, as a prisoner of the Lord. Now, it's not the first time he said this in our passage. Uh, he starts chapter 3 saying the very same thing. And sometimes when you read that, it's easy to think, well, why in the world would Paul say this again? I, as a prisoner of the Lord. Is he just wanting to remind us that he's in jail? Yes, he's in a Roman prison. He, he is uh, under a death sentence when he writes this. Is he trying to gain sympathy from it? No, what Paul is wanting us to remember 
as he's about to call us to live a life different, a walk with Christ, he is wanting to remind you that he's lived it. He's walked it and it cost him. But he also wants us to remind it that it's worth it. It's worth it to go and follow what he's about to ask us to do. The second thing he's doing by telling us again, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, is he's wanting to, in, in advance, remove any excuses you and I might have for not doing what Paul's about to ask us to do. See, what Paul is saying is, listen, I know when we go through these verses, when we go through these chapters, it's going to be easy for you to make excuses about why you can't do that. You're going to say, oh, pastor, that's a great principle. But you don't understand how busy my life is and how much stuff I have going on or how much pressure I'm under. And Paul is whispering to our excuses. I'm a prisoner. I'm in jail. I'm under a death sentence. If I can do it, you can do it. See, we're going to want to say, but, but I've got kids and teenagers and busy lives and hectic. And Paul says, I'm chained to a guard 24 hours a day. And I can do it. We're going to say, God, I want to do those things. I'd like to live that way. But you just don't understand financially we're struggling or we're in debt or, or we're having a tough time. God, I can't do some of these things. And Paul is saying, I have to depend on other people for every." drink I take, every piece of food I get. I'm totally dependent on God and others to provide every need I have. And I can do it. See what Paul is saying as a prisoner of the Lord is he's reminding us that it's tough to make excuses when you have somebody there with you that's doing exactly what it's called to do in much worse circumstance. Be kind of like somebody that you know that's a paraplegic that doesn't have legs wanting you to go and run, you know, and saying, hey, you know, come out, we're going to go jog and we're going to do this three-mile trail. And, and uh, you know, it'd be one thing just to say I'm not going to run, but it'd be a whole other thing for you to say, well, listen, I would love to go run with you and you've got artificial legs and I know it's tough for you. I'd love to go run with you, but you don't understand. I've got a blister on my pinky and uh, my little toe and, and it's keeping me. That would, wouldn't really work, would it? I know you, you, you know, have to put these things on your legs to run and it hurts with every step that you take and I'd love to but I got this little blister coming up you know that would sound silly Paul saying listen I know you're going to make excuses I know when I tell you this is how you can live that will make a whole difference in everything that you do excuses are going to be the first thing that comes remember I'm in prison and I'm still succeeding at what God has called us to he says I Paul prisoner of the Lord urge you some of your translations say entreat you and that doesn't neither of those words really capture the passion and the strength of what paul is saying here that word there that word urge and entreat is the word paracleo it's the same word that we use in the in the proper pronoun for holy spirit Basically, it means I come up alongside you with the intent to help. Basically, it is more than begging. It is more than pleading. It is a passionate, everything that you have, encouraging you to do something. 
It would be as if you were with somebody and they had a cup of poison and they were about to drink it and you're trying to convince them not to drink it. The passion that you would express in telling them not to do that, that's where Paul is coming from. See, it's every, he's not just saying, listen, this is a suggestion. I suggest you do this. Listen, I I think it would be good for you if you would try this. I, I think you ought to think about this. Paul is saying, listen, with every fiber of my being, I'm pleading with you, do this. What was so important that he would plead with us to do? Says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, plead with you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Some of your translations say, walk a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now that word live, that walk is always indicated as day to day. It's not a big picture. It's an everyday thing. It's an every decision. It's an every moment thing. You see what Paul is saying is I urge you to live every day, to walk every decision that you make, every step that you take, everything that you think about, to live it in light Worthy of the calling that you made. Now, there's two words there that sometimes can get us stuck. What does it mean to live a life worthy? Sometimes when we think of worthy, we think of deserving. To live a life deserving. Some people live a life to, that earns your calling. You see, and that's, that is a trap that many Christians get in. So we try to live our life to deserve what God has already done for us. That's not what Paul's saying, because you can't do that. See, there is nothing in this life that you can do to ever deserve what God has done for you. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to pay God back for what he's done for you. So many people get caught in that trap and they think, I've got to do this. You know, if you give or if you serve as a motivation because you're trying to pay God back, it will never work. You'll quit. Because somewhere in your life, the joy will be stolen and you won't enjoy what God is telling you to do. Because you've got the wrong motivation. Because God's not telling you to, to live a life deserving of what he's done. Try to earn what he's done for us. The word worthy there is the word axios in Greek. And it, it means scales. It, it, it's a picture of scales lining up. And so it would be matching. Uh, coordinating would be another term that sometimes it's used. If you were to say that his clothes coordinate or, or those colors coordinate, they, they match. So what Paul is saying that will make a difference in your life this year, what he is so passionate about, what he is so excited for you to try is to live a life that matches, that coordinates, that fits together with your calling that you've received. Now, you need to understand, he's not saying live a life that matches what Jesus did. Live a life that matches, you know, the cross. You can't. He's saying live a life that matches your calling. Now, what does that mean, calling, call? That word is used over 140 times in the New Testament. Those who are called according to his purpose. The calls of God are irrevocable. Almost every time it's used to describe those who are called out to follow Jesus Christ. Those whom the Holy Spirit has drawn 
to follow Jesus. You see, what, what he's talking about here is what it, not just what it means to make a decision for Christ. He's talking about everything that comes with that decision. That's the calling you have received. What is it that comes with you following Jesus Christ? All of those things he just talked about. All of those things in chapters 1, 2, and 3. You see, what Paul is saying is, I urge you, I plead with you to live every day, every decision, every moment, everything that you do in your life, matching, coordinating, fitting in with who I say that you are, who God says you are. You've heard people talk about letting your walk match your talk. You know, in church we do that a whole lot, you know, and as a youth minister I used to say that all the time, you know, your talk and your walk need to match, and that's important. Uh, What you say to believe and how you act are very important. If you don't, it's where hypocrisy comes in. Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. And so your talk and your walk should match. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying something even deeper. You know what he's saying? He's saying that your walk and his talk should match. See, what he's saying is that your life should be lived in a complete connection, balanced with who he says you are. See, when God says you are a child, his child, you are a saint, does your everyday living match that up? When he says you've been given every spiritual blessing, does your everyday walk match that up? When he says that that you are now a part of his kingdom and you have been given the keys to the kingdom and you are joint heirs to his kingdom, that you are his son or daughter in Christ, does your decision-making match that up? When he says that you have the same power within you right now that raised Jesus from the dead, does your walk match that? You see, it sounds so simple. Paul saying, I entreat you, I encourage you, I'm telling you, you've got to do this. It'll change your life, it'll change your marriage, it'll change everything about you. All you've got to do is to live your everyday living, live your walk in a way that matches with who God says you are. That sounds so simple, but the problem for most believers is we've never really claimed, we've never really embraced who God says you are. We don't understand who God calls us. We don't understand what we have. We don't understand who we are. Because you see, to to get that requires diving into his word and discovering the truth and allowing it to become a part of you. It doesn't happen by osmosis. Doesn't happen by rubbing it, by sitting close to somebody that's living it. Doesn't happen by having a preacher tell it to you. See, I can tell it to you all day long, but until you claim it, until you embrace it, until you make it yours and stand on the promises of God, you'll miss it. Because you see, what I'm finding in church is it's so much easier just to stay on the surface. The elementary teachings, the milk that Paul talked about. We're not willing to dive down. And in our our unwillingness to dive down and grab a hold of these deep truths and make them our own, we're missing out on the power of God changing every day. One of my friends calls it Peter Pan Christianity. 
We've flown off to Neverland, but we don't want to grow up. Not me, not I. So we like the idea of heaven. We like the idea of not going to hell. But we don't understand that that is the end game for the Christian. That is the bonus. That what God is calling us to is heaven on earth. Walking with him every day. Seeing his power released in us. Marriages transformed. Families transformed. Businesses, schools transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit that you have in you right now. What releases it? You know, we just talked. Last week at the end of Ephesians 3, he says, God wants to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. When does that happen? When are you seeing God do more in your life than you ever asked or imagined? It happens when you walk, when you live, when you make decisions that balance with who he says you are. What's going to make a difference in 2015 in your life? The power of God being released because you grasp who you are and what you've been given. Could you use that in your marriage? Could you use that in your home? Could you use that in your business? Could you use that in your everyday walk? Well, how does it happen? God's will and God's word. Go back, practical, go back. Instead of just saying today, yes, Rusty, that's what I want. Yeah, Pastor, I I want that. This year, I'm going to go write that down. Live every day in balance with who God says I am, with my calling. I'm going to walk worthy of my calling this year. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to put it on the dashboard. That that won't do anything. Just like you saying, I'm going to die this year. Won't do anything. Go back. Tomorrow, sometime, take five minutes and open the Word of God. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and read where he says you are a child of God. And as you read that, say, Holy Spirit, make that real to me. God, I've been rejected all my life. God, people have turned their back on me. I I struggle with acceptance. I struggle with peer pressure. God, make it where I am a child of God and I don't care who else cares. Make that a part of my life. And that may take you a week. It may take you a month. Because God's going to start unpacking stuff when you ask him. He's going to start showing you things that you can apply who you are in Christ to in your life. And after you get a hold of that truth, then go to the next truth. I've been given every spiritual blessing under heaven. You start thinking about that. You mean faith? I've been given all the faith that I need. You mean love? I've been given the capacity to love as much as I need forgiveness. I I can forgive. I need to stop praying. God give me forgiveness. You got it. You just need to claim it and apply it. See, the key for this year is to discover God's will and God's word. That's where the power that will change your life comes from. I don't know about you, 
I could use more supernatural power as a church, as an individual, in my everyday life. The Bible says if we had the faith of a mustard seed. I used to think that was hyperbole. I used to think that was just a great illustration. That's not. That's a promise. If we had the faith of a mustard seed, we could move mountains. When's the last time you moved mountains? God, let us live a life worthy of who you call us to be. Let's pray.